This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, still social distancing here at home in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how Procter & Gamble is wrapping up its packaging goals, Intel's sustainability chief on water stewardship, new predictions from fringe consumers, and there's something in the air waiting for you at the office. Wait, I have to go back to an office someday? Ugh. This week on 350. It's May 8th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her undisclosed location in Midland Park, New Jersey, Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey. I never have to go back to an office. Yeah. <laughs> well, lucky you. I mean, uh, here we are. Here we are. This is week 114, I think, now. Uh, that, uh, it feels been... like it. You know, it's funny. Yeah. Someone was saying to me yesterday, they were trying to recall a date of like, when this all started and they couldn't figure out like they were like blurring with the what was it like before and in the midst of all this we just updated our website <laughs> oh <my> God. <laughs> <laughs> always a fun thing and you know, oh. god bless the team isa stamos in particular for shepherding this uh, we have a new look and feel on the home page and individual story pages and you know, uh, it's still working out some of the kinks. Uh, it's going to be a process, but um, I'm kind of excited about uh, It's always nice to have a, a, a refresh. Yes, indeed. It really looks wonderful. Uh, be, but be, be, be kind. If you find anything that seems broken, tell us in a nice way. Yeah. Um, but what I'm really excited about for next week is Lead on Climate 2020. This is an annual effort spearheaded by the nonprofit group series to uh, do a, uh, a lobbying effort to buy businesses on sustainability uh, in Washington. Now, this is the first year where it's going to be virtual like everything else, uh, but it's called the largest ever virtual call to action from the business community to members of Congress this is happening on Tuesday at a call for uh, Build Back Better strategy. Build Back Better is uh, one of the memes we're seeing, uh, hashtags that are starting to catch on, uh, and recognizing the need for a resilient, clean economy. So um, they're going to have, uh, last year was uh, 75 companies hit up 84 congressional offices in person. Uh, this time it's going to be a, a bigger group that's going to uh, be talking with, I'm not sure how many congressional offices, uh, but you got companies like Danone, Microsoft, Mars, Capital One, Dow, Schneider, uh, Schneider Electric, Nestle, General Mills, Akamai. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm going to be able to lurk. I'm doing a little bit of the training session where I'm going to do some welcoming remarks to the companies and a little bit of rah-rah. But then I'm going to sit in on one of the sessions and... Uh, very much looking forward to that. Oh, I'm so jealous. I was hoping to do that in person this year. I had I actually spoke with a, a CSO about uh, this 
she did it last year and she really, uh, it really gave her a new appreciation for what she was doing and for the, for the importance of this. So excited. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear more about what you, uh, find out. Yeah. And we're going to talk about one of the things we're going to talk about is investing in the resilient infrastructure and sort of this whole green recovery thing. We'll talk more about that in a minute. In fact, why wait? Let's get right into the weekend review. So as I said, we're talking uh, green infrastructure, green recovery, it, uh, a growing theme. And we ran a piece this past week uh, called Sustainable Infrastructure Investments Can Aid the Post-COVID Recovery by Catherine Davison and Joseph Losavio from the World Economic Forum, uh, talking about the fact that, uh, and this is just a theme we're seeing all over the place, that if we do this right, the recovery out of the coronavirus pandemic, we can address climate, we can create jobs, uh, we can avoid some of the uh, problems that sort of got us in this mess. And um, I, I just, I really think that that's a theme that we want to be talking more and more about. Well, one thing that uh, also happened this week is a, a report that came out of Oxford with uh, some very high profile authors, Nobel laureate Joseph Stieglitz from Columbia University and the prominent British climate expert, Lord Nicholas Stern, um, talking about uh, how green recovery can revive the virus hit economies and tackle climate change. Um, and then the third piece of this is something that also came out this week is that a bunch of French companies, over 90 of the France's largest businesses issued a public call for the government to prioritize the countries they call it ecological transition in the economic recovery plans. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, you know, BNP, Paribas, and Suez, and Danone again, Saint-Cobain, uh, Schneider again, EDF, BASF, um, Siemens, Bayer, GE, a bunch of others. Uh, and so I think this is a theme we're just going to be seeing a lot more about of how does sustainability help get us back? Yes. And there's one theme in this story I really liked being the geek that I am. And it was how digitization and, and technologies like cloud computing and artificial intelligence could help with the management of this infrastructure once it gets into place. So the United Kingdom, the UK has already been talking about uh, investing in what they call digital twins. And, and I, it, it, this is a concept of, uh, uh, you know, you basically have in, in a system somewhere, you have a a, a, a virtual representation of something that's physical and you can kind of keep track on it of it in different ways and do planning scenarios around it. So that's what that means. But there's also a really fascinating um, program happening in the, in, in Australia, um, in the port of Brisbane. Um, it, they talk about how they, you know, had the need to accommodate more traffic, more container ships. And instead of like going out and dredging, the harbor and the seafloor and like doing more damage, they they invested in cloud computing technology to help understand the best, um, it looks at the currents and the tidal levels and the wind patterns and so forth to, to basically let the port figure out how to get larger ships into the harbor um, depending on the natural climate and what's going on and, and the environmental conditions. So it was, they were able to avoid that you know, bad infrastructure investment by using technology. So I, I'm really curious to see about the role that technology will play in enabling uh, the the build out and the the management of sustainable infrastructure. 
Yeah, and then there's the, you know, what's going on at the company level. And there's a great story this week from uh, Deanna Anderson about Procter & Gamble and how they're approaching packaging. Um, I thought this was interesting. I know this is a topic that you've been looking a lot uh, at, Heather. What, what's going on here? So the, this story does a good job of talking about how different companies are experimenting, right? So it's, there's a couple of different different packaging uh, pilots that are going on right now. And they're actually beyond pilot because uh, they are are showing up in brands. And first involves the Tide laundry detergent brand. So the, the division spearheading this is the, the sort of fabric care division. Um, and they've got this thing called the Eco Box. It's kind of like a, a wine box. If you, if you do those wine boxes where, uh, you know, cheap wine, they say, right? Paperboard. Oh, yeah, and, I know those yeah. very well. So they've they've not gone really. to this this <laughs> well I'm not going to pass judgment on that but oh, okay. <laughs> but so they they said why not use this for detergent so um, they had tested this with the Tide brand and are now expanding that to a couple of others um, I think it's Dreft and uh, Downey right so um, they're expanding the program and the the good news is that uh, it's it's less impactful the bad news is. They still have to use plastic to line the, the cardboard, right? So this is a cardboard box, still has to be lined, and that plastic cannot be recycled, right? You can't put this out curbside. So in, as a stopgap, PNG has partnered with TerraCycle to, to do collection on these things. So right now, the infrastructure can't handle it, but um, you know, it's like one of those step in a right direction kind of kind of moves. Um, yeah. And this yeah. brings up a really interesting dilemma. It's just, how do you make the choice between something that has less packaging? Uh, but may not be fully recyclable or something that's a lot more packaging and is recyclable. If you know your three R's, and I know you do, Heather, uh, it's reduce, reuse, recycle, and that's a hierarchy. So the first thing we want to do is reduce, use the least amount of stuff. And the second part is, of course, of the stuff we do use, we, we reuse it as much as possible. And then, of course, at the end, we recycle it. And by the way, recycling always seems to be the first choice, even though it's the third uh, in, in the true hierarchy. So this is an interesting case where uh, how do you talk about this to the consumer? How do you even measure it from a life cycle perspective? Um, and 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 this is and then how do you get consumers to want this? Uh, it just reminds me of something that. Uh, so this is their not their first rodeo PNG on this because back uh, in the early two thousands, I want to say. Um, Procter and Gamble, or maybe it was the mid two thousands. Procter and Gamble uh, and all the other detergent companies uh, all went from uh, they all put out these ultra brands. So this was the ultra brand, which was two x. It was twice as concentrated as the traditional one, which means you could put twice as much in a in a bottle, or as they did, they'd put the same amount in half the size bottle. And uh, by the way, that was that was uh, really. Forced or encouraged by Walmart because Walmart was uh, sort of looking at environmental issues and waste issues, but also they saw that there was a win-win for them on this, at least because uh, the, the smaller the package, the more they could put on the shelf. But here's the thing: uh, consumers didn't like it. They'd see the small package and the big package right next to it, the same price, same number of loads, and they say, "Yeah, I want the big one, damn it! I'm an American. I like bigger is better, and doesn't matter. It's harder to lug home or harder to pick up and pour." It took a while until they got rid of the old one. So that's one of the challenges here: is how do you you can design all the great packaging you want, and of course, as I said, there's the life cycle issues. But then, how do you get people to want it? 
Yeah, it's a habit thing. So actually, I'll get to test this uh, and see this in person because the other thing that I wanted to mention, um, Procter Gamble, we talked about the fabric care division. The beauty division also just came out with uh, paper packaging for two of its really high-profile deodorant brands, Secret and Old Spice. And so the package format contains 90% post-consumer recycled content and 10% new paper fibers. So um, they've come out with those or they're hitting the, the, the shelves this month. And so we'll see what happens with that. Those paper. So it's a little, it's not quite the same. Uh, I think in my mind, the same issue as a plastic. Um, but, and, but the shape, the shape is very unusual. The shape looks really different. Um, so I, we'll, we'll just have to see what habits, what habits will change and what habits won't change. And the way all that stuff happens is by companies like P&G working very closely with their supply chains. And that brings us to the third story we want to talk about this week by Abash Ganazi, who's the CEO of ASCM. That's the Association for Supply Chain Management. I can't tell you how excited we are to be partnering increasingly with ASCM. Uh, we'll see uh, a number of things coming out of that, I think, in the, in the coming uh, weeks and months. Uh, but you know, this is really looking at from the view of the supply chain management, how to think about sustainability as opposed to the sustainability people thinking, talking about how to think about supply chains. That's exactly how we need to be approaching this from the, the business, the non-sustainability perspective and bringing them into this. And Abe does a great job of uh, discussing sort of at a almost a 101 or it's actually a, maybe even a 201 level. Uh, some of the key considerations around how you engage uh, uh, the entire organization around this and how you talk about it with suppliers and the role of digital supply chain technologies and and how uh, you you just bring in partners to really make sure you're not on this journey alone. Um, we're going to be talking a lot more about this topic around supply chains because that's, uh, you know, sort of like uh, Willie Sutton, you know, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do you talk about supply chain? Because that's where the impact is. Uh, and uh, if you look at, we, t- we publish every year in our State of Green Business Report, uh, a, a graphic showing where the majority of, of impacts come from uh, in across uh, 24 different sectors. And in, I think, 20 of those sectors, more than half of the impacts come from their supply chains. And in probably 18 of those sectors, or more than 80 or 90% of the impacts come from their supply chains. So this really needs to be where companies just press in and look at, at how do you engage suppliers. And I love that Ashkenazi and ASEM are, are looking at this and not seeing sustainability as some cute thing that doesn't really apply to supply chain professionals. Yes. And for me, one of the big things that jumped out from this story, obviously, again, the digital stuff, but also the the global comment that he has just right there in the headline, because I think a lot of um, individuals and companies and so forth are coming out of the pandemic are wondering, can, you know, should we be having those global supply chains? Should we bring things more back to, to the United States or whatever local economy you're, you're thinking about? And I think the point here is that uh, for me, it's about flexible supply chains, and they're going to be all over the world. And it in- requires you to have those dialogues and conversations and connections. And to do the right thing for your company in the moment 
is so important. And I, especially as people know right now, and, and the companies that have managed to continue shipping their traditional product during this time have been extremely adept at pivoting and looking out and finding new suppliers and engaging, but not abandoning the old, the, the other partners, just, you know, changing the focus for, for the moment. And so I think that's really important to, as we move forward out of the pandemic. Semiconductor and technology manufacturing giant Intel committed to restoring 100% of its global water use. This year on Earth Day, the company said it had reached a milestone of 1 billion gallons restored, enough water to support 9,000 U.S. households for an entire year. Joining me to talk about that achievement and the company's progress is Todd Brady, Director of Global Public Affairs and Sustainability. Todd, thank you for joining us on Green Biz 350. Absolutely. Great to talk to you, Heather. Well, I hope everyone is well. Um, I wanted to start with a, a question about context. So help me understand that number. Is it a cumulative amount is, or is that what you use in a year? How should we think about that 1 billion gallons number? It's a nice big number. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly. And in fact, if, if you recall, I think it was 2017 at Verge, it was the Verge meeting in um, Santa Clara, if I remember right, the Santa Clara Conference Center, where we announced a new goal that we wanted to restore enough water to uh, cover 100% of our water usage. So making to put water back to local communities that we were using. And um, over the past couple of years, we've, we've worked on that and worked with a number of different partners and identified projects and and begun to execute those projects. And we reached a significant milestone that we announced on Earth Day, which was that we have now restored a billion gallons of water. Um, what that means is uh, the projects as we fund them and they are executed, those are done on an annual basis. So the projects that we fund are reoccurring. And so the billion gallon number is that we have now completed enough projects that they are restoring back to local communities, aquifers, rivers, streams, et cetera, a billion gallons of water a year. And so, um, and that's on an ongoing basis then into the future as well. So is that 100%? No, we're not at 100% yet. If you do the, do the math and, and break down our, if we, if we start at the top, at, at Intel, our, our total water usage, um, and I'll, I'll round the numbers just to make it easier, uh, is somewhere around 12 billion gallons of water. Um, we have returned, uh, we returned roughly 10 billion gallons of water, and so that leaves a gap of about 2 billion gallons of water, and we've closed half of that gap. So we're about, if, if we look at that on a percentage basis, we're about 90% of the way uh, towards our 100% goal. Okay. You know, I want to ask for, for, for other context. Have you seen a significant change in water consumption during the, the COVID-19 crisis that we're facing? In terms of our own use? Well, yeah, specifically Intel. I mean, are, 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 or is everything st still trugging along? So in terms of our own water use during the COVID crisis, we have continued to operate our manufacturing operations 
uh, around the world. Uh, where we are located, we're considered an essential business. Um, the chips and technology that, that we manufacture is used in all of the things that are allowing us to shelter in place and work from home, uh, online working, online commerce, the data centers, the, the PCs, the laptops, et cetera. Uh, and so um, we have, are very grateful to our essential employees. Uh, unlike myself, who's been working from home, uh, we have many essential employees in the office uh, at our manufacturing sites who are keeping those operations going. So our water use during the COVID crisis uh, at least for our manufacturing operations, has remained uh, pretty much the same. Obviously, where we've closed office buildings, where we have software uh, engineers and designers and those individuals can work from home, then our water usage has dropped dramatically. Okay. Okay. Now, you, you alluded to this earlier. You said you, uh, you've got all sorts of water conservation projects going on, and you've had them going on for many years. Um, you've got two dozen projects, I think, in the United States that you had announced um, in the 2017 timeframe to help with this goal. Um, and I, I know that some of it includes crop conservation, invasive species removal, um, lake and stream restoration. So I'm curious, what, what are some of the most impactful projects and why? Yeah, the, it, really, it, it really runs the gamut, as you well articulated of the number of projects. And as we've begun investing in these projects and finding partners, the innovation is always um, really eye-opening and it's exciting to get involved and, and to participate in these projects. So picking out, you know, favorite projects is like identifying your favorite child, right? It's, it's kind of tough um, to do. But there's a, a couple that come to mind. Let me, sh I'll share with you. One is a project that has been completed and is ongoing ongoing in the sense that the water savings continues now year after year. And then the second one is one um, that we just started and we'll see that water savings in the future or the water restoration, I should say. Um, the, the, the first one I'll talk about is one that's in the uh, Verde Valley in Arizona. If you've ever been to the Phoenix area, Phoenix is in the desert in South Central Arizona. And then uh, if you take I-17, the interstate and go north, Eventually, in two hours, we'll hit Flagstaff. And very remarkable differences between Phoenix and Flagstaff. Phoenix in uh, lower elevation, desert, Flagstaff, pine trees, uh, high elevation, skiing, you know, winter sports, those kinds of things. Uh, well, in between that, you, as you make that drive and slowly rise in elevation, uh, you hit an area called Camp Verde which is near Sedona, for those of you who have been there. Very beautiful area. But it's, it's called Camp Verde, and, and the locals call it Verde. In Spanish, it'd be Verde, which is green, because you're going through primarily a desert area, and then all of a sudden you see this green valley, and, uh, which is now an agricultural valley. And, and the reason for that is there's a river that runs through there, the Verde River. And um, the, the challenge, though, in... Um, in agriculture in the desert is the evaporative losses. And the primary um, growing seasons tend to be during the summer where the losses are the highest. And so this project was a, a very innovative project in partners with a number of different partners, but the, the, the really the, the brainchild, if you will, behind it, I have to give credit to the Nature Conservancy, who said, you know, is there a way that we could incentivize farmers to switch 
from currently growing alfalfa, which is a very water intensive crop that's grown in the summertime. And so we have a lot of water losses and it uses a lot of water to grow. And that's the time when the river is the most stressed. Um, when the temperatures are high, you don't have the, the snow runoff and whatnot anymore. And so could we incentivize the farmers to switch to a, um, a different crop? And so uh, the project was working with the agricultural community to do that and switch to barley, which is grown in the wintertime. In the wintertime, there's lots of water in the river, uh, winter and, and spring, and you're getting the snow melt and the runoff, and, um, and barley uses a lot less water than alfalfa. One of the challenges, and one of the things I think is really neat about this project, is to do that, there had to be a source the farm, the agricultural community, farmers aren't just going to switch crops if they can't sell that crop. And uh, so the concern was, well, if we grow barley, is anybody going to buy it? And so pulling together a number of different partners, um, the net net of this entire uh, project is farmers are now growing barley in the wintertime. There is now a malt house in Camp Verde, which can take that barley uh, and turn it into a malt. And then that malt is now sold to local microbreweries around Arizona. Previously, the barley was coming from other states. Now they have a local source. And so really a really cool project on not only saving water, uh, putting more water back in the uh, river in the summertime when it's needed, um, but also growing the economy locally with a new business popping up and then providing uh, a resource for the local microbreweries. So it, it really just brings all the elements together of projects that we love to be a, a small part of as these go forward. Um, second one that I would mention that we have uh, just funded and has just started underway, uh, in California there have been uh, devastating wildfires, in Northern California in particular, which you know everybody around the, the country has seen. Um, and we have recently engaged in a project there to reforest and to bring back the forest in those areas. And uh, I think there's over a thousand acres that will be reforested as part of that. And what that does, and you, know, you may say, well, what does that have to do with water conservation? Well, when you have these devastating uh, forest fires, the, uh, then when you do get the rains, you get flooding, uh, all that water is no longer now retained by the forest where it will then seep into the ground and recharge the, the groundwater and the aquifers. Uh, which are critical for um, the population in the future. So by reforesting, we can recreate those forests, which will then encourage the, um, the water to be restored into the groundwater uh, there in those locations. So we're excited to be a part of that because it's a, it's a rebuilding of the community, if you will. And um, you know, that's a project that we wanted to, mm -hmm. to be engaged with. Well, and, and, and you just announced your first international project related to this goal, I believe. Can you describe what you're hoping to achieve with that one? Yeah, that's right. And, and that, one's, that one's exciting as well. It's, it's a, a different project. It's in India. And uh, our operations, and that's one of the things I should mention, um, the projects that we are, are funding and developing are in areas where we operate. So part of our goal when we set our goal was that we wanted to make sure that um, as we were restoring water, we're restoring water back to the communities where we're using water. So we didn't want it to be thousands of miles away. We wanted it to be relevant. 
And so um, in Bangalore, India, we have a large R&D center where we do a lot of different design for 5G and AI and, and all of the emerging technologies. Bangalore, um, and I've, I, it's fascinating because I learn more every project that we do. I, I learn more about uh, local conditions and what's going on. But Bangalore was originally a city of hundreds of lakes when it was first founded many years ago. That's why the city is located where it is. But you fast forward to today, and there are a few dozen lakes. Um, the population growth there, uh, over extraction of, of groundwater and, and water, and uh, just not maintaining some of these lakes, they've all dried up. And it's quite a challenge. The city and the municipality is trying to turn that around and restore a lot of these lakes. And so we have identified a, a former lake that is uh, near our location there in Bangalore. It's, uh, you know, I won't do the, I won't do justice on the pronunciation, but Lake Nanjapura. And the idea here is to go in and uh, we started this work, I think in February, to desilt the lake. And so over time, a bunch of silt is built up, it no longer retains any water, desilt the lake, build walking paths around the lake to make it a place where the community wants to come, plant thousands of trees in that area. And these lakes then will naturally capture the monsoon rains, which are common in India. Um, and then as the lakes capture that water, that water will then percolate into the ground and again restore the groundwater. So it makes an area that the local public can use, but then also is recharging the, the um, aquifer which is critical in India right now, particularly in the Bangalore region. Well, intriguing. Uh, one last question before I let you get back to your social distancing. Um, how will the ongoing economic disruption impact your water restoration efforts over time? I mean, you mentioned that they're tied to operations, so if the operations are still running, it, it, it begs to, stands to reason that you would be continuing. So any any thoughts on on whether you'll be still moving full steam ahead, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have no plans to um, stop or slow down the, the program. We're continuing to invest. Um, the majority of the, the two dozen projects that we have either completed or funded so far have been in the U.S., but we're now expanding that internationally. Um, we have seen some slowdown in our ability to get work done on the ground because of of the COVID pandemic, which is understandable, but um, you know, with with passing time and, and with the reopening of, of countries and businesses around the world, we anticipate that that will pick up, and our investment, as I said, will continue. Uh, we don't have any plans to scale that back at all. Well, thank you, Todd, for joining us. I hope uh, continued health to you and your family, and, and to your colleagues at Intel. Thank you, Heather. Same same to you. You just heard from Todd Brady, Director of Global Public Affairs and Sustainability for Intel. Last week, three respected real estate companies, Cushman and Wakefield, Heinz, and Delos, announced an initiative intended to help companies begin the process of reconfiguring their offices to protect employees' health as they return to Earth after the pandemic. Their research, which will be conducted in the Well Living Lab in Rochester, Minnesota, will be used at Cushman and Wakefield and Delos locations, 
and shared with corporate tenants and landlords. And yes, as the name suggests, the lab is focused on studying the convergence between buildings and health. Here to discuss the here to discuss the project is Paul Shala, founder and CEO of Delos, which founded both the International Well Building Institute and the Well Building Standard. Hello, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us on GreenBiz 350. Pleasure to be with you today. I wanted to start with a little bit of context. Give us some context about the Well Living Lab and what is its mission. So the Well Living Lab is, uh, uh, has been up and running for several years. It's a Delos-Mayo Clinic collaboration. Uh, it's a real facility, uh, a building adjacent to Mayo's campus in Rochester, Minnesota. And um, it's dedicated to understanding the convergence of the health sciences with the building sciences. Uh, Delos itself has been uh, looking at this uh, intersection for several years uh, and uh, the lab is a great uh, way to put this um, idea or notion of these two industries and how they intersect into uh, real study. Uh, so the lab is highly configurable. It's got uh, several different modules uh, that we can configure and create all types of indoor spaces. It can simulate a bedroom, school classroom, or commercial office environment. In the case of this study, that's, uh, that's what's being done. Very sensory rich. So it's got a lot of sensory technology quantifying all types of indoor indicators uh, that matter for, for people and our ability to um, create real life settings and, uh, and analyze people uh, and uh, the impacts of what surrounds them in that setting. How have you, I'm curious, how have you already used the lab? Is there anything you can mention as a project where you've, you've, you've changed a practice? Yeah, there have been, um, there've been, as I mentioned, there have been about, uh, several years of, of work here and uh, looking at uh, the intersection of all types of uh, elements, uh, you know, things like lighting versus sleeping patterns and uh, air particulates uh, versus cognition. Uh, you know, there's a whole slate of, uh, of information and research that the Well Living Lab has published through the years. So how did this new project come about? Well, clearly, as the world has changed here uh, with this this pathogen concern and you know COVID nineteen, and there's a lot of discussion on and around uh, best practices for returning to work, we have been you know zeroing into categorical elements of concern, you know airborne viral load, surface borne viral load, and and then the whole behavioral component. And um, we were able to get uh, two fantastic companies to join the initial uh, lineup here in terms of how do we take uh, best best practices and insights from uh, industry folks and look to uh, take an evidence-based approach in the lab to these various interventions to see what may work and also enable the ability to take uh, the various things being studied in the lab into the field immediately into uh, real office settings as well. So what specifically will you be studying? You mentioned a couple of the past studies, right? So what? give me an example of, uh, of a scenario. Yeah, I, I think when you look at the, again, the concern with COVID-19, as we look at all types of industry suggestions and parameters and protocols as to what will uh, redefine or what could redefine a healthier, safer office, zooming into the, the, the topics, um, certainly we're going to be focused on understanding best practices to uh, help reduce and try to uh, eliminate airborne viral load uh, and looking at, you know, particular size of, of something like COVID, you know, 0.08 to 0.14 microns in size, and looking to implement the effective air filtration technologies that can be highly efficient at, at reducing those components in the air. Uh, so that's one category. Uh, certainly, we can also uh, start to examine spatial distancing protocols and 
looking to understand how those might be effective in helping reduce viral transmission, but also looking at qualitative elements of employees working in that simulated setting as it pertains to comfort and productivity and communication and satisfaction. So really a a qualitative look uh, and also a quantitative look as to what are appropriate interventions and effective ways that offices should be uh, looking at going forward. You, You have sprinkled some mentions of different technologies already into your answers, but I'm just curious if there what sorts of things will you be used to measure measure this? I mean, I know that building management systems and energy stuff has been pretty, um, you know, lots of companies talk about making investments in that. Are there, there solutions in place today that a, that a building manager might have that could help them determine some of these same things? Yeah, I, you know, certainly, again, you get into the quantitative measures of surfaces and surface contaminants or air and air quality. Um, those are those are obviously uh, two two elements on the physical uh, measuring, if you will, but also the qualitative elements of the folks going about their daily job. You know, as as people people uh, in this simulated office environment and getting uh, long term insights as to um, how these different interventions and, and configurations, office layout, what have you, uh, how that's um, how that's impacting them from a qualitative standpoint as well. Are these real people that are going to be testing these out, or are these scientists and researchers part of your team? I'm just curious, like, whether tenants? Oh yeah, going no, they're, there? They're, yeah, no, they're, they'll they'll be going about their normal normal day uh, mm-hmm. uh, working. Uh, this is really meant to simulate as uh, real uh, a world as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how big is this actual facility? The uh, facility itself is five, six, seven thousand square feet. I'm not sure of the configured space that's going to be used for this yet, but it's going to be a meaningful uh, amount of space to simulate uh, a normal office environment. So I'm sure that the listeners, one of the first questions that they probably would have asked long ago is, "How much is this going to cost me?" What, what's and, and let's just step back and, and ask, what sorts of investments or, or updates do you think? Um, it'll take to make these changes? Are these things that maybe reconfiguration or are they going to have to go and update systems in their office? Um, maybe there's several different levels of, of intervention. Yeah, what I could tell you is Delos and the Delos Labs team have been looking at ultrafine uh, particles for many years uh, You know, before this type of viral concern, but uh, certainly combing the market and understanding all different types of products, solutions, technologies. And it's encouraging to see that there are solutions to get up to 99.97% efficiency uh, in reduction down to a very small micron size. Um, That's not your typical or standard filtration, but uh, what we have found is there are solutions and products out there, highly configurable, highly scalable, affordable, uh, whether it's uh, wall-mounted or in-duct or uh, in-line solutions that can scale. Um, And that's, 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 that's exciting to see that, you know, there is enough of a technology base here where this doesn't have to be brand new science and brand new technology and something that costs a fortune. Um, This, this is something that can be implemented into existing buildings, new or old, uh, regardless of configuration. And uh, that's a good example of, of, of some of the uh, the things that Delos and Delos Labs has been um, up to for for several years to uh, determine and, and and again take an evidence based approach at uh, at identifying solutions and putting science to it and then extending that into um, for instance a setting uh, like the Well Living Lab uh, looking at all different types of interventions and um, and again really putting the right lens on this uh, in a holistic sense that's a good one that's one good example. 
this is one final question for you, and you've already alluded to it a little bit, but do you think these changes will be permanent? Do you think we're going to take a whole new look at how we, we, we operate in offices and work, work together in the future? Oh, certainly. Uh, look, whether it's COVID-19 or COVID-24, I mean, this, 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 this reality is, is here to stay. Uh, you know, culture has changed. Uh, we see uh, uh, evidence here of, uh, of what this takes from a humanitarian toll standpoint, uh, certainly an economic uh, uh, toll uh, standpoint as well. And you know, this is really going to lead us more into the notion of being prepared uh, and, and looking at uh, topics of, of resiliency, recovery, and, and, and almost like elements like that. So, you know, this is not just a, a race for a vaccine, and, and then we can all go back to normal. I, I think we have become acutely aware that what surrounds us matters, and whether it matters today, tomorrow, or sometime in the future, uh, our buildings need to be uh, future-proofed against something like this. We had a webcast this week called Seeing Into the Future, What Fringe Consumers Can Tell Us About the Post-Pandemic Marketplace. I had the pleasure of uh, moderating that with Suzanne Shelton, President and CEO of the Shelton Group, and Susanna and Kemma, who is the Vice President and Insights at the Shelton Group. And what they did here was they debuted some research, uh, we were the first to hear about it, uh, where they looked at uh, what they call fringe consumers. Those are uh, ideas that bubble up from the fringe that eventually become mainstream. Just one example, four years ago, a small segment of consumers talked about life without plastic and were concerned about plastic waste in the ocean. Of course, at some point, we that tipped the last year and a half or so, and all of a sudden, plastic pollution, plastic waste uh, became a very big issue. And, and there's a few other examples like that. Uh, Pre-COVID, some environmentalists were challenging people to rethink air travel and moving instead to virtual meetings. And here we are, Zoom City. Uh, so the question is, well, what are fringe consumers thinking about now that could become mainstream expectations of companies? And we had just a fascinating look at all of this. I want to play you a little clip. Um, let's just get into it. This is Suzanne Shelton, the CEO of the Shelton Group. We have seen over the last few years a, a shift towards sustainability that we haven't seen before. And, and it's, it's kind of twofold. There is a, a clearly a social proof, social proof or social pressure aspect of this, um, in which pre-COVID, 42% of us uh, wanted to be seen as someone who was buying green products. But beyond that, we have also seen pre-COVID that 86% of us expect companies to stand for something more than just making money. In this new COVID world, what we're seeing in the fringe that is quickly becoming mainstream is that, that those ideas are amplified. So what we're seeing clearly in all this, this listening that we're doing right now, again, fringe and mainstream, is that businesses are sort of uh, acting in one of four ways, and therefore they are getting categorized in one of four ways by consumers. So there's a hierarchy, if you will. So let's let's walk through that. Um, the first step, uh, here we go. Uh, the, the first the, the first level of of being involved. Um, Looks, looks like what Marriott is doing. And, and I want you to know, I'm a huge fan of the Marriott CEO and the authenticity with which he's brought forward what they're doing. Um, Marriott is basically saying, look, we have empty hotel rooms. We'll, we'll let healthcare workers come into them. That's great. That is a way of getting involved. But, but there is a way in which 
they're making uh, lemonade out of lemons. They already have the empty rooms. They're not giving anything up in the mind of the consumer. So they're not giving anything up to, to make this offer. Um, so it doesn't hold as much weight as some of the other tiers. Um, so the next tier up is actually giving away um, something that feels like money, like you're giving away something that you could have charged money for. So in this case, you know, um, uh, Planet Fitness and Audible offering up some free content. It, you know, it looks to an average consumer like, well, you could have made money on that, but instead of making money on it, you're choosing to give it away. That's great. So that's better than having free hotel rooms that you're letting, they're, they're available and you're letting people stay in them. That's a little bit better than, than, than the first tier. Then um, even better than just choosing to give away something you could make money on is actually giving money away. Uh, so the next tier up is, is an example like Guinness, uh, who's giving a million dollars to support the bar staff around Great Britain. So this is money that they could have kept in their pockets that they're choosing to give back. So again, better than giving away for free something you could have charged for is actually giving away money. And then even, uh, even better than that um, is the next step up, uh, which is going way beyond minimizing your losses um, and, and, and really doubling down. So changing your manufacturing to make products that, that address the immediate need um, so, so you're not only give, giving up money and sales you could have had, you're literally manufacturing things that you're going to give away. So it, that, that is the ultimate way of being involved. So you can start with, okay, let me make lemons out of lemonade and sort of open up something that I already have available. Start there, but then better is, okay, well, let me not charge for some stuff that I could have charged for. Better is let me give money away. And then better is let me actually use my manufacturing might to make products that are gonna help solve the problem and I'm gonna give those away for free. That is seen as the most skin in the game. And when you look at how consumers are categorizing this, this is how it comes out in their parlance. Like I just sort of walked you through in polite business terms, the way that, that consumers look at it as the first one is like, yeah, you kind of look like you're helping when in reality you could be doing more. I, I'm gonna make a bold, unpopular statement. Um, I think most of us in the sustainability arena, me included, um, I think we've been living in this bucket. I, I, think, I, I think we've been pushing out stories around, um, you know, 30% reduction of this and 20% reduction of that um, and, and kind of looking like we're helping when maybe we could be doing more. So I wanna tell you that I think as you think about your 2030 goals and 2040 goals, I think you've got to go way beyond or else you're going to live in this bucket forever and be seen like, yeah, you know, they're all right, but they could be doing more. Um, instead, where you want to be is moving, moving from left to right. So treating the mild consequences of the problem, but better protecting the people that are affected by the problem and then actively fighting the problem. So as we think about how do we rebuild a society that really works for people and how do we protect the environment in a way that works for our children, you want to be on the far right of the screen, not on the far left. So I think this causes us all on this call to rethink sustainability and not just do the minimum, not just do what's what's a little bit better, like radicalize what we're doing for people on the planet uh, so that it, it's, it's big, it's game changing. We are actively fighting the problem. I think that's where we've got to get to in order to be seen as leaders on, on um, in, in the future. And if you'd like to watch the entire webcast, you can find a link to that on the page for this week's episode of 350. This episode is sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices 
that you can immediately apply to your organization, offered online and on campus. Visit VUSustainableEngineering.com. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Before we go, I want to plug two webcasts coming up next week. On Tuesday the 12th, we're going to be looking at how to transition food supply chains from extractive to regenerative with Green Biz Analyst Jim Giles talking with Jeff Hanrady at General Mills and Katie Anderson at EDF, the Environmental Defense Fund. And on Thursday the 14th, I'm going to be looking forward to a intimate one-on-one -on -one conversation with the inimitable John Elkington, gentleman who has uh, been in this uh, for 35 years and really has shown the way, coined the uh, phrase triple bottom line, uh, just really been... Uh, telling us what's going to be happening next. And we're going to talk about what's going to be happening next uh, upon the publication of his 20th book called Green Swan. So be sure to tune into those. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out more about the webcast, the organization stories, and other things we mentioned this week. While you're on GreenBiz, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six every week. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay home, stay safe, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in.